we need the level of proteins because they are determining the functionality. And most of the drug targets also are proteins. And so for really adjusting the therapy to a patient, we need to also then know how much of this component is really there. It really changes your mind because my feeling of what was needed in the clinic is not what they actually need. So you only get there when you work with them on a daily basis. The amazing advances in gene sequencing technology over the last two decades have not yet sparked the revolution in personalized cancer treatment that many have hoped for. Though there are success stories, the overall frequency of actionable mutations, those that can be targeted to make a real difference for patient survival or quality of life, remain in the single digits. Some of the obstacles, tumor cell heterogeneity, limitations in detecting structural or copy number variants, and the often uncertain significance in the clinic of mutations in non-coding regions will no doubt be overcome by advances in genomics. But there is also the option to leapfrog genomics entirely or to complement it by using proteomic approaches. You may be surprised to learn that, as the guests on this episode of our podcast, Ursula Klingmuller and Matthias Mann told us, clinical proteomics is already contributing to improved patient care. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. Ursula Klingmuller heads the Systems Biology of Signal Transduction Group at the DKFZ, the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. Dr. Klingmuller studied biology at the Universities of Bayreuth and Heidelberg. After a postdoctoral period in Boston, she returned to Germany to join the Max Planck Institute for Immune Biology in Freiburg. In 2003, Dr. Klingmuller moved to the DKFZ. The thing is, I was trained by a chemist. And he always asked us to tell him about picomol, for example. And so I was trained to really look at, at volume, at, at quantities. And so I have always pursued this. And I think, yeah, it is appreciated more, but things are still not widely recognized. I think also in proteomics, that is the field we are currently exploring, it is more towards identifying as many proteins as you can. So generating big data, how quantitative the data is, how reliable is less of importance. That's at least our impression. And that's our kind of unique niche where we try to develop things because we are convinced that for a clinical application one day, we need to have very reliable information for the individual patient and not a ranking in a cohort of thousand patients only. I have really great clinical collaboration partners, I have to say, and we are working very closely with them. We used to have quite a lot of mice that we used as model system. We had uh, transgenic mice, we, we generated and, and used them, and we realized we will not do this anymore. We, my lab is actually shifting towards uh, patient samples, and uh, we just for some confirmation studies, we'll use mice, but we will shift quite a lot towards patient sample. But this is only possible because I have this very close-knit network. What I'm seeing as the next hurdle and the big challenge is to really improve our phenotypic readouts. So the assays we are using to really define that this has an kind of an effect on things like proliferation, survival, migration. The assays we are using there are really usually very classic and they were not kind of designed or never designed to generate data for modeling or large scale. 
And there's a lot of potential there for imaging approaches, for example, to really improve this and also then combine the high-end imaging technologies with really our bioinformatic colleagues that they then really help us to uh, design pipelines that allow us to extract the data in a reliable way. Because what I really, the observation we had was, for example, some time ago, uh, cell tracking was so to, to develop um, bioinformatic tools for cell tracking were very fashionable and everybody seemed to generate an, an own version and none of them so far as I know really works to the extent that even our theoretical partners the modeling partners always then said at the end the data that you did by hand was better and we have to overcome this. Matthias Mann began his academic career studying physics and mathematics at the University of Göttingen. He is currently a director of the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry in Martinsried, where he heads the Department of Proteomics and Signal Transduction. Dr. Mann is also a principal investigator at the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Protein Research in Copenhagen. I really liked physics and mathematics in school, and then uh, I also really liked it at university, but then I always thought, you know, the golden age of physics is actually over. So I studied in Göttingen and the golden age was 1920s, maybe. <laughs> so I was a little bit late. I thought uh, I like biology and it has its golden age before it. So I should rather switch to that. And by contrast, I personally was never interested in chemistry. And that, that's not because that would be the next step from physics. But, but I wasn't interested in that. And I thought um, already that time I thought uh, biology had some of this digital quality that I like. Right, in the form of sequences and genes and stuff. And um, so that appealed to me. And you need good measurements, like many people have shown. I was fortunate to be in the lab of John Fenn in, at Yale University, and he developed the electrospray. So I was on that team, and he later got also a Nobel Prize for that. So uh, it was clear that you could, for the first time, analyze large um, and fragile biomolecules. So so you got the Nobel Prize for um, that you could analyze by mass spec proteins, but this also goes for small molecules, like you couldn't analyze before a vitamin, right? Like um, you shouldn't cook your fruit because the vitamin will be destroyed and it will be certainly destroyed by mass spec, but then not anymore uh, due to electric spray, but you could analyze all kinds of fragile biomolecules then. And so John Fenn had gone for, small, uh, for large molecules and that, and then uh, I thought in my um, postdoc in Denmark on bringing it into protein science in the first instance. But then I thought you could also bring it into molecular biology, but nobody believed that, it's, um, especially not the people at EMDL. So I had sort of three years to prove it, <laughs> a very stressful time. <laughs> what was established when I came was that you could use it for protein chemistry. Like if you had a bucket load of protein, you could determine the molecular weight and it was always wrong. That meant they had done something wrong in expressing it. And that was okay, but when you really uh, wanted to find a new factor, and the human genome wasn't even there in that time, but there were like short snippets of DNA. So people still wanted to, they had an activity, they had a, a band on a gel, and then they wanted to know what is that band, and the technology was Edman degradation, and you need also a lot, um, but much less than from our spec. So I figured we can be much more sensitive than them and much more specific. And now we have these databases. We, we don't need to sequence a whole protein, right? We just need the minimum amount of sequence, and then we'll tell you what fragment in the DNA library is this, and now you can clone it, and even you get homology and so on. So this, um, this was the idea, and then we had to miniaturize uh, the electrospray, so that made it also that time 100 times more sensitive, and, 
and I had a, a postdoc from Russia that, that worked out how we can actually get the proteins out of the gel. And I, I myself coded, uh, you know, for minimal mass spec information, how can we find the DNA fragment? So I coded that. So it was really the, the team of us three, you know, was, and then we didn't publish anything for two years, but then we had our nature paper and other groups at Ian Bill collaborating with us also had 10 cells in nature paper before telomerase and all those proteins by this approach. So it was um, a high, high risk, but uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but, but then it worked out very nicely. Ursula Klingmuller and Matthias Mann discussed basic and clinical proteogenomics with Molecular Systems Biology's Senior Scientific Editor Maria Polikronidou over Zoom earlier this year. Genomics has really dominated cancer biology for many years. And I wanted to ask you, what do you both think proteomics brings to cancer research, especially considering the, the large technological advancements that have happened in proteomics in the recent years? Coming from the German Cancer Research Center, we have, of course, a major focus on genomics research, but more and more proteomics uh, becomes important. And um, I think the, the level that proteomics brings in is really to address the functional level, which is not addressed fully with the genomics. Genomics just gives kind of the instruction for proteins to be built. But what they then do and how they act and how they are changed in the context of cancer is not addressable with the, with these technologies. And also um, then mutations are kind of the favorable target in genomics. But I think genomic uh, mutations are just not everything. Much is really a changed functionality, as we showed that the abundance is key in determining information processing through signaling networks. I totally agree with um, Ursula and um, also add that um, you almost find too many mutations by, by genomics. Um, and then you have this famous problem, you don't know what are the driver mutations and what are the passenger mutations. And uh, I would say if the mutations have an effect on the proteome, then they could be important. If they don't have an effect on the proteome, then they cannot exert their function, right? at least not directly. And what is the importance of understanding uh, proteins at a quantitative level for systems medicine. Yeah, I think that that's, again, the strength of looking at the protein level, um, and especially with mass spec, uh, because you can really quantify the proteins. And yeah, for instance, again, with a mutation, okay, if it's a loss of function mutation, the gene product will be gone. So that's kind of trivial. But then we want to know what other proteins are changed due to that and by how much. And if you want to build models, which Ursula can tell us much more about, uh, you actually need the uh, level of, uh, you know, of the things you plug into the model. So it makes a huge difference whether it's affected 10% or 100 fold, and you can't even tell that at the, at the transcript level. Yeah, this, this maybe is the perfect transition because we just looked at that how little correlation there is between the mRNA level and the protein level. And uh, that what you have to do is you have to define for each protein, so to speak, the specific translation rate from an mRNA, then you can get a bit better in to estimate uh, quantities from mRNA. And so I think what has been done widely to use transcriptomics also to SS and, and proxy is maybe nice, but uh, it's clearly not sufficient and in particular for our dynamic pathway models, it is 
kind of not sufficient and we need really absolute quantities it it matters it makes a big difference how much of a component is there whether for example more the akt pathway pf3 kinase pathway is used and can be targeted by a drug or whether it's primarily the map kinase pathway and it's just a matter of abundance differences and that we would never see by just having the genomics level Ursula, if now we go to a clinician, are they in a position to suggest to us to develop a dynamical model of a patient, of their signaling, or how, how is it? I think this is not, I mean, mass spectrometry will remain a very high-end, highly technological um, approach. And I think it is more like that we see that we will build um, web-based interfaces where the clinician can kind of place then an information We analyze samples here at a, maybe at a company or, or at, a, at a diagnostic laboratory. And then this is fused and gives then in real time the clinician the information on the therapeutic decision. I don't see the mass spectrometers going to a clinical setting. It's rather to standardize all procedures in a way that samples can go very rapidly to this highly specialized settings and then be kind of analyzed and then the data is returned and combined with models that give them a guide then for therapeutic decisions. Yeah, as we all know, in end-stage cancer, the situation is desperate. Also, both the clinician and the patient want to try everything. And we have certainly had these cases already with, um, you know, these are what they call N equals one cases, individual cases. But as an example, For metastatic prostate cancer, we then found that in the metastasis, uh, the androgen receptor was re-expressed uh, and as, an, as a particular isoform. So this had never occurred to the clinicians. The moment they knew this, they then treated again with the receptor inhibitor and, and that helped, right? So maybe um, the bar is not, also not as high as we think sometimes. And of course, um, it's you know, all the cancer drugs that are coming on the market, they're typically You know, in the U.S. at least um, $100,000 per, per year of extension. Uh, that's not unusual. And then you could throw in uh, a mass spec. Um, it's not like you need to save 25 euros for the mass spec or 200 euros even for the mass spec um, because you're going to spend uh, $100,000 anyway. And even in immune oncology, you know, if, if the patient not going to react, right, then um, it's better for the patient and for the health system that you don't even try. So if you can say, you know, this breast cancer doesn't need treatment or this uh, immune oncology would not be uh, the right thing, it wouldn't help very likely in this case, and then that could be a, a hugely important thing. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. How, how easy is it for you to get access to, to clinical samples and to get to manage to obtain samples that have been obtained in a way that are suited for you to perform the analysis you need to perform, that are fresh enough, processed in the correct way? Uh, are these discussions that need to be done early in advance? How, how do you go about with that? Yeah, so this is uh, due to our very nice collaboration with the clinical partners, for example, at the Thorax Clinic. We have access to whatever samples we would like to have and uh, it's also that they are fully aware of the all the necessities to really process the data in a, or the, the samples in a standardized manner they have SOPs in place and we know exactly also the time frame the restriction it's then sometimes we have discussions that some of our partners would then say yeah but we would like to have the sample for uh, within 30 minutes 
and then we just discuss with them and but the clinical reality has restrictions so we have to work with certain limitations but we have to be aware of this and due to this collaboration we are very good in this range and also the um, gastroenterology the same that because I have also clinical physicians working part-time in my group that then go in the OR and um, secure the, the samples as we need them. I mean definitely also especially if you want to still do something with the cells or you want to do phosphoproteomics perhaps, then that's especially important. And where we, um, the interface we like to take a lot is, is um, FFPE samples. So there's um, hundreds of millions of them around the world and that's fairly standardized, right? So people you know, wait a little bit longer or shorter and it takes a while to be fixed, the tissue. But once it's fixed, it's very stable for decades actually. And then we can get the block and we can you know, shave off slices and you know, everything from then on, we can do it in the same way. So um, FFPE is actually, I mean, it sounds like a horrible procedure, but, but because proteins are very stable, unlike RNA, it doesn't really hurt the proteomics. And in theory, there's all these millions of samples waiting to be analyzed. And we certainly also now have the sensitivity for that. So that's where we put the emphasis that we have a very streamlined uh, pipeline from the FFPE on. And only for like more biological experiments will we take fresh frozen and then you need to standardize very much. Yeah, but the, there the advantage is since we have been collaborating for so long, we now we get fresh frozens from our, all our clinical partners. Because what we want to do is to really have very target, very accurate, absolute quantifications. And for this, the uh, cryoconserved tissue has been better. I imagine the way you as proteomics scientists are given a different perspective by talking to the clinicians. They are also given a different perspective and maybe while up to directly interacting with you, they thought that proteomics is a too expensive, too difficult, too fancy technology for the clinic. Maybe they changed their mind as well. So I wanted to hear, now that you are both together, to hear your experience about these direct interactions and what did you learn? What do you think the clinicians learned from you and how does that go generally? So I'm, I'm part of these networks and, and there we, we are now increasingly, we are at the moment pre uh, preparing for the next DZL funding round and DZL40. And I have been approached by, like, I'm involved now in 10 of the project proposals, whereas like four years ago, it, it was much less and there it was considered a very complicated, less advanced technology. And now I think things are changing and we are also getting ready to really analyze many of the clinical samples that they are, they have or are, are generating. And I think the other day, what was really revealing was they, in this, in one project, they, they believed we need a lot of material. And so they were saying, no, we don't have enough samples. You can't get them. And then we explained to them that we need very little. And afterwards they were very excited to give us the material and said, ah, this is how little you need, that then you can get it. Uh, totally agree. So again, also if you have these FFPE blocks or you have fresh frozen tissue and you only need like one slice, you know, then 99.9% .9 of the samples still there. So that's not an issue. Yeah, and of course, also so many years ago, they weren't even very familiar with transcriptomics, but now a lot of them are familiar with that. And then it's also proteomics is not more cumbersome for them than transcriptomics, uh, actually less. Um, but I would say um, doctors are not equal to doctors, right? I mean, like 
we get the whole um, span and you know um, exaggerating a little bit and some some doctors hardly know what a protein is and and others publish themselves in nature on mechanisms right and then it's of course best to start sort of at the top you know the, the ones that are really i would say not only in quotation marks doctors but they're really interested in research and publishing and then you start with them and work out the kings and so on and then you can sort of work down to more mainstream doctors that are not so interested in publishing and they just want to do the best thing for the patient but then um, by that time you already have you know you know what their problems are and constraints and I mean, that's another thing so i've found also a lot of times they are under very different constraints than we are so for instance a lot of doctors are totally overworked they have no time and also a lot of clinical settings are, are not well funded so they get their money to treat their patients and then they they somehow have to pinch some money off to do research, right? Because they want to advance the field. And I mean, that wasn't on my radar. You know, I always thought they were much richer than we were, but, which can be the case, but, but, but mostly not. So one goal of, um, of all this proteomics analysis and in general, your, your line of research is uh, drug discovery. And in drug discovery, understanding the mechanism is usually important. I wanted to ask, how do you think we can bridge hypothesis-generating large-scale approaches with more hypothesis-driven, more mechanistic approaches so that we reach a good level of understanding that leads to having a drug that, is, that can be approved and eventually is, can be used in the clinic? So we more and more combine this anyhow, because I think with proteomics, uh, with a data-independent acquisition mode, you we get global proteome information and we kind of then analyze the, our favorite molecules at a larger scale and, and see which other angles are there that we should consider in our dynamic pathway models. And with this, then also understand better how we could intervene in this, in this network. So we combine this, we, we, we have the global aspects, but then we really develop a targeted approach for the networks we are most interested in to be predictive. And so I also see for the future that for the companies, they can get much better in uh, really identifying the, the, the targets in this context-dependent manner. So I, I would like to break it down into two things. So one is the more usual thing is that you have the drugs that you have and you're more in the given case, I mean, not developing a new drug, but you are trying to match the drug to this particular tumor or patient. So, um, and there's already precedence for that now in the last few years. So there's, for instance, Foundation Medicine, I mean, they, they take samples and it's quite routine now in the US and cost like whatever, $4,000. And they give you a little signaling diagram, you know, where the mutations fall. They only tell you the actionable ones and then they, uh, then they match some drugs uh, that, that the doctor could use. So there is some there is some precedent also how you bring into the practice uh, because they have done that. Um, problem is it is not very efficient or um, you know, it doesn't whether you do this or not doesn't make unfortunately a very big clinical difference. So this could be hopefully different with proteomics and and it should be because as Ursula said we're close to function. Um, so that's one way to go. And I think also with what's established in the market in the US that's not undoable for proteomics. So that's the one way. Then we have um, collaboration with so-called phase one units. So this means um, treated outpatients um, with the 
this resource retail and, and they have a lot of drugs that are not yet on the market and the companies give those drugs to them and then we can try to match based on what they're supposed to target and what our global analysis tells us what um, pathways or what biological functions are disturbed that they might want to use this drug. So that's the next stage. And then, uh, you know, developing drugs, that takes too long time for me, so I don't want to touch it. You know, the companies have enough troubles with that and they have to come with a, uh, you know, with a candidate. I'm, uh, I'm not interested. I mean, I'm not good at developing drugs. <laughs> I also don't think this is the task of proteomics groups or even modeling groups. And uh, I think the companies are better, much better off in this. And uh, I think what is also, as I, I totally agree with, with Matthias, that what is really a very important aspect is really to adjust and a given therapy to the setting in a particular patient. As I said, I mean, there is a huge vari variability in, in, for example, uh, the amount of drug targets, so the, the, like the EGFR receptor, and um, that matters then. And uh, if you can give less to a patient and still achieve uh, a good result, then the patient is much better off because we're always not considering all the side effects of all these this therapies. And you may stop the tumor, but the patient may still have not a very good uh, quality of life, will suffer severely from diarrhea, vomit, uh, nausea, what else, and or even, even anemia. So we have a very strong project in developing a tool to optimize anemia treatment. And if people are smiling sometimes in the context of cancer because they say, oh, yeah, but it's much more important to stop the tumor growing. I totally agree, but if the patient cannot sustain the chemotherapy anymore, then it is important to kind of ensure that they are not suffering from fatigue due to anemia. So there is a lot of potential in optimizing things that we have already and make this much better that patients really benefit from things and have really as little as possible side effects. In 2018, Matthias, first author Sophia Dahl and their collaborators published a single patient study in the journal Molecular Oncology applying a proteomic approach to the case of a 57-year-old woman suffering from metastatic uracocarcinoma. That time actually a big uh, problem was that um, you always want to compare something to something, right? Like if you do genomics, you just look, okay, what are the cancer mutations, right? That's, um, that can be actionable. But if you do proteomics, um, then everybody's proteome is different and every cell's proteome is different. So what do you compare? And that's been now the, the huge change that we do this at the single cell type level. So we can use from, from the same patient, we can take the more cancerous cells, you know, more inside the tumor, let's say, and we can compare to exactly the same cells you know, a little bit further outside or much further outside. Then we exactly see that for this patient, such and such proteins are upregulated. And with all the cancer literature, there's almost a lot of times too many targets. You know, then you need to even decide what you, should you try. So, uh, yeah, and it was also surprising to us in the case you mentioned that we thought, okay, all this deep sequencing and everything is so established, right? Like, uh, and we would be uh, the slow ones and so on. But yeah, we, we got these samples like uh, my student got them Friday evening and uh, Sunday she had the answer. And, you know, and then they were waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks for the genomics, right? So it's a, a lot of times they also make organized nowadays, it takes months. 
So actually, that, that's an unappreciated uh, advantage of proteomics that is very robust and fast. And um, yeah, I'm sure you, you can do a lot of these deep sequencing-based methods faster if you wanted to, but that's not the reality now. So, so actually, it was a surprise for me that you could, in principle, do the proteomics faster than those other methods. But yeah, so we, um, but also there's some ethical questions because as I said, when you're in this end stage, you know, everything has been tried and both the doctor, but especially the patients and their relatives, you know, they really want to try everything. And then you have to be careful not to say, okay, here's a volcano plot, here's some upper-legged proteins and then, um, you know, go and treat it now like that, right? Because there's always a cost to, I'm mean, not even economic cost to doing this, but also human cost to, to doing this. So we have to be, quite sure that that this is a high likelihood of actually working so that's why in the end yeah we can go in the clinic now but we have to be very careful so the gold standard still you know you have to do at least a little clinical trial you know with um, whatever 30 here 30 there and then there has to be some good um, indication that what you're proposing based on the proteomics actually helps so we're doing this now in Copenhagen so we have a Court of 2000 retrospective and then incoming, right, 500 per year. So we're doing this now, and that's still based on bulk proteomics, but we think it will really be super helpful once we do the same thing for single cell proteomics. So you mentioned ethics implications, and actually, Ursula is also a member of the German Ethics Council. So it would be interesting to hear what she has to say and, of course, what both of you have to say. So, of course, all these technologies that profile at large scale are very, very promising because we can extract a lot of information for every individual. But at the same time, each individual becomes more and more identifiable. All this information is combined with other information from fitness-like trackers and things like this. So how can we ensure that we are respecting ethics considerations while at the same time extracting the information we need to really be able to diagnose, to treat at the personal level? I think it is a very important issue, but the, the, the reality at the moment is a bit the other way around. Yeah, there is this danger, but what we struggle with most is really that it takes forever to get all this legal paperwork done to even analyze a patient sample. And there we are losing a lot of a lot of time and I think one has to weigh. So we have very strict rules here. We suffer a lot from that. We have local ethics committees that have to decide and they are different in Bavaria, uh, in Baden-Württemberg and so on. And then not to mention the, in other countries. So we have one project there where we have it will be ending in summer and we have not yet been able to really sign all the paperwork, although the project has been running now for almost three years. So this is like into the pandemics that even slowed us down more because all the ethics committees were busy with uh, some COVID related applications. And then it is like that it's also a bit unclear at the moment where how which rules we have to uh, uh, um, obey. That uh, for for proteomics data, because most of the rules have been um, invented or established for genomics data. And more, the more we information, as you say, we tie together, the more identifiable the data becomes and how to kind of protect this. It is important, but it at the end of the day, as also Matthias mentioned, an end-stage cancer patient, it, has no time and and the the only hope they have is that we we can propose something 
but one has to always consider that it also can affect then the relatives, for example, that some of the knowledge we find may then also reveal something about the, the setting or the situation of an, a relative. And there, of course, we have to be very cautious and, and ensure that uh, this has no consequences for, for insurances or so that uh, there no stigmatization takes place. So there is a lot of responsibilities, but I think we also need to work towards that it's a bit more pragmatic and also yeah, considering the reality and also the right of the patient that the patient should also at the end, the data belongs to the patient. And we have to make sure that they understand what we are doing, which is not so easy, but we need to pay attention to explain it. Also that the physician who, who decides for the treatment understands what we are doing, but at the end of the day, it should be also a right of the patient to decide when the patient really would like to also donate the data or get the treatment that is maybe better suited to the person. Matthew? Yeah, I 100% support all that. And I mean, that's also our experience. So it's not even um, the ethics so much. I mean, that, that has to be in place. Otherwise, we can do nothing. But it's the GDPR, you know, this identifiability. And, and this is made for something totally different, right? I mean, the EU has, it's good they have some regulations, but it's made for Amazon or what have you, right? Like, um, or Facebook or something. It, it, is, it, was, it wasn't made for end-stage cancer patients. And the EU just didn't do their job of putting some research or medical exemptions. And we have to now live with this. And in Denmark, where we have a lot of the clinical cases they even extended the gdpr um, so it's not even that it's europe-wide right like Ursula also said it's different in germany it's even different in denmark so denmark decided they would just add 10 years to the gdpr right even somebody's 10 years dead you know they they um still shouldn't be identified right and i mean yeah if it's some genetic thing we could even understand it somehow but you know how does it impact the person if they're nine years dead and and, and somebody very unlikely um, identifies them. But then I, I want to say also technology can help. So there's a, a lot of exciting technologies uh, about, um, you know, sort of blockchain related and um, also a lot of technologies where you, the data never leaves the hospital. So you do all the analysis there and it cannot be aggregated. Like, like a simple thing, our collaborators have data and we have data and uh, we use two keys so that are encrypted in both places. Then, you know, a lot of the GDPR doesn't apply anymore because a hacker would have to hack both places simultaneously and, and that's very unlikely, right? So there, I mean, we can also do something and but the regulators need to also really see that that's, that's something that's important for the patient and it cannot be that, you know, you can die, that's okay, but you cannot be identified, that's not okay. So we, we talked quite a lot about diagnosis and treatment. But what about the prognostic applications of these technologies? Is something that you see happening already? Is it coming soon? Matthias, maybe you want to start? Yeah, that's sort of the holy grail um, because I mean, that's actually, in a way, that's the only thing that has um, has worked in cancer. Because end stage, yeah, we have some miracles with immuno-oncology, but that's a few and far between. Also very expensive. Whereas, you know, to take a low-tech example, uh, is melanoma, right? I mean, if you see on another person, very small melanoma, send them to the doctor, their life is saved, right? If if you just didn't see it and it was three months later, they die, right? Like, so this is an illustration. So with uh, proteomics, the, you know, the hope has always been to do plasma proteome-based measurements. I mean, I've been very critical of this because I mean, it's just now that we, we can even 
diagnose uh, like liver disease, right? Like we can do this now, we can do it better than any existing method, but this took a long time. And the liver is like a huge organ, right? And then uh, again, coming back to the melanoma for the cancer, you would have to see what this, you know, half a millimeter um, melanoma was secreting into the bloodstream, just six liters. So this is very, very difficult technological challenge. So uh, I would say, yeah, um, it will come, but then the more low-hanging food are late presenting internal cancers like pancreatic cancer and so on. So uh, when you when you can, because there people present when they feel bad, right? And, and that's a very late stage and we should also be able to do the same. So yeah, I think for the um, plasma-based proteomics, early detection that will take some time, but it's promising. But the huge opportunities like... Um, breast cancer or prostate cancer, you know, very widespread cancers. And, you know, so many people present with them. And most will actually a lot of times benefit from you do nothing, right? especially with prostate cancer. Uh, but then, especially in the US, everybody gets treated and gets tons of side effects. And, uh, you know, out of 20, only one benefits from that. So if you could use the proteomics on the uh, biopsies, say, okay, you don't need to worry and you should really have it removed, right? And this would even make the most difference what i see as as a really also a benefit is we have this huge increase for example in obesity and this is not a disease by itself yet in many cases but it can have uh, many side effects if it is escalating and what we are seeing in the u.s i mean it's going to the extreme and so and but there is a gradual transition and it develops over many years and this is why their proteomics, I think, holds many benefits that we could maybe then have people that come for a regular checkup uh, just screen them better for signs that they may be on, on the verge of really developing a fatty liver disease then and progressing to fibrosis without too much efforts in, I mean, we can then gear them towards imaging technologies, but this is like a more um, structured process that we could kind of integrate proteomics in. That is what I see as a, a huge benefit of the development. Right. Yeah, I totally agree again. And I, I was kind of homing in on cancer here, but that's, that's exactly an area that, that we work in is the liver disease, right? And as I said, the, you know, the liver is a very large organ. Uh, and the other thing is that... Um, uh, the population that's at risk of tipping over into fibrosis and it becomes irreversible is actually quite large. So it's like seven, eight percent. And it's not only in Western countries, also especially in India and China. So and then if you apply a little bit of a filter, like certain age and um, maybe alcohol and certain BMI, then uh, then I think a proteomics approach to screening could be very, very useful. And you can do it in 30 minutes now. Before we close, I have um, a final question. During our discussion, both of you emphasized that good quality data is very important for interdisciplinary and integrative research. And I guess if we want to get serious about the quality and the reproducibility of the data, then there is a need for academic credit and evaluation to value this. So it should not I guess be only the scientific output shouldn't be measured only by published papers, but should be also measured by the quality of the data that is put out there. What kind of changes do you think we can make to the system to, to make this happen? Because I guess all scientists would benefit from well-documented, good quality data that they can reuse for their own work. I think one part is, of course, the journals. 
that they are much more insisting. And I think molecular systems biology is a very nice example that uh, things are really requested and then that uh, also other people try to really reproduce the results that that you're getting or that you also then maybe are sharing. Maybe there maybe should be a, a collection of, of gold standard samples that, that one can then use as a reference, for example, and demonstrate that with these samples uh, one gets certain results and can reproduce things. So we can, I think as a community, we, we should be working for this also. And uh, in MS Choruses, and Matthias is also part of this, is the mass spectrometry initiative in Germany to uh, kind of develop mass spectrometry for systems medicine, gives us the opportunity and we are launching, there. we're having ring trials Uh, where we already try exactly this to stabilize the methods and also the the workflows that are used to evaluate the data that goes hand in hand. And uh, I think there is much development. Matthias. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I also agree. And I also say that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of um, scientists are, of course, of a certain personality type, right? And they're, they're competitive. And like people say, they, they'd rather use each, each other's toothbrush than each other's protocols. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah but then you have to incentivize them exactly by by giving grants that, that give them money only if they they actually share the toothbrush and uh, that's one thing and the whole uh, reproducible science movement with uh, you know python scripts and jupyter notebooks and so on that the journals have been pushing are uh, pushing so that's yeah those i think those are the ways we we have to tackle that and also a, a general appreciation so if you're an analytical scientist like me then you think beautiful data is beautiful in itself but then biologists more focus on mechanism and medical people are more on treatment or whatever so they don't have the same formation of their outlook yeah and also I have to say i mean just to be controversial there's um, i think this is quite good from the way it developed from mass back and some other fields molecular biology but in medicine it's different and for instance with the plasma early detection, we have, for instance, this SOMA logic, right? I mean, these 5,000 reagents that are supposed to measure the levels of proteins in the blood, and they've never been validated, right? But I mean, I'm not saying it's bad, it's just never been validated, right? So in the curious development that, that you have all these papers in science and nature and so on using these reagents, but you don't have them in hardcore uh, journals, right? Because they would ask for, okay, let me look at the data, but but they never do that. But it goes through in sort of very high ranking and they have claims of this and that, but you can never get at the data, right? So that's still there, even exactly in our field. Yeah, I totally agreed. I think this is, one needs to be able to to then also check, have, have a look at the data to, to kind of have an own view on things also and, and to kind of get a, get a feeling that that uh, everything was kind of also conducted in the way that it's claimed and um, yeah, yeah. and also and to this, make things sustainable yeah and because now it gets in a way even more challenging or worse because then people you know if people have um, like these panels and you don't get to look at the raw data and then they do some layers of machine learning deep learning and then they say this and the other right and now, now you're totally swimming I mean, we have no way of reproducing that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ursula and Matthias, for taking the time to yeah, thank talk you. to us. It was really it was a pleasure. wonderful discussion. I hope we get the chance to, to continue it in person at some point, maybe at a meeting. Thank you for listening to the EMBO podcast. 
You can keep up with our latest episodes on your preferred podcast app and by following Embo on Twitter. Thank you.